Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may that be the testimony of our hearts and of our lives, that we would treasure you as fair above all else. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. If you're in first or third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. The rest of us are turning to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 12 is the beginning of our passage this morning. Our passage goes from verse 12 of chapter 1 all the way down through the end of chapter 2. What were long car rides like in your family as a child? When your dad or mom would tell you that we're getting into the car to drive to vacation or to visit family, and you would climb into the car after it's been loaded up with all of your luggage, and you set off on a long journey, what did that mean for you? Really, there are only two options, usually set by your parents. The first option is what I call the option of the iron bladder. That means that the dad gets in and he says, you better go before we leave. We're going to stop once in four hours and you'll have one more chance. And then we're going to get there. And if you have to go between the first stop and the second stop, you're in bad luck because you just got to hold it. The other option is the fun dad. The dad who says, we're going to go on this journey, but along the way there are stops. And there's going to be a stop in about an hour and a half, and it's this great thing we've never seen before. We've seen signs for it. We're going to stop there. We're only going to stop for about an hour or so, but we're going to, we're going to enjoy the way. And then, and then there's a fun place we're going to stop for lunch. And then after that, about an hour further, there's another stop. There's a rest stop, and we're going to get out and throw the Frisbee and throw the football. And then probably about an hour and a half before we get there, we need to stop again to make sure we're actually ready to arrive, right? And, and stretch our legs and maybe, you know, go to the restroom and straighten everything up. And, and then finally we get there. Those are really the only two options. I won't tell you which one I grew up with, but many of you could probably guess that I have some scars in my life from traveling long distances as a child. Often when you go on vacation or you go on a trip, you talk about where you're going to go, and you talk about the experiences along the way. Halfway between here and Papa and Gigi's house in South Carolina, there is a small piece of real estate that's like heaven on earth for weary travelers. It just opened, and it's called Bucky's. I don't know if you've been to Bucky's or not. I think there are between 80 and 90 gas pumps at Bucky's and a giant superstore full of every toy, trinket, and snack a kid can imagine. On our last trip, I gave each one of our kids $5 to spend at Bucky's, and you would have thought it was Christmas. But the problem is, you don't know what to spend it on because there's so much everywhere. We're on a journey in Ecclesiastes, we're on a trip. And we know the destination. In fact, it would probably be good for us to remind ourselves of that. Turn to the end of the book. The end of the book is is really the journey of where we're going. It's the conclusion. It's where Solomon is taking us. We find it in chapter 12 and verse 13. 
the end of the matter, the end of the journey. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So here's his conclusion. Live for God, recognizing that one day you will meet him face to face and have to give an account. Keep him as your primary goal. Fear him as your primary love, as your primary drive. Keep his commandments as your primary actions. That's where we're going. But along the way... Solomon takes some stops. On this journey, he's stopping at different rest stops. He's stopping in different ways. And he's explaining to you, first of all, what he knows to be true. The beginning of chapter 1 was that. And then our passage today, he gives us three stops, pit stops, along the way on this journey. These three stops are the stops of gaining wisdom or knowledge His second stop is the gaining of pleasure. And his third stop is the gaining of the American dream. Of hard work. The results that come from hard work. These are the three stops we're going to look at this morning. Solomon is no longer just sharing wisdom with you. He's sharing experience. He's saying, I've been there. I've seen the sights, and this is what it is. I've experienced the pain, and this is how painful it was. I've experienced the grief. I've experienced the pleasure. And I want to tell you what comes of that so that you won't make the same mistake. With that in mind, let's begin reading our passage. Chapter 1 and verse 12, down through the end of chapter 2. And as we read, I want you to see these three stops And then his conclusion at the end of chapter 2. God says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 12, I the preacher have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I have applied my heart and to search out, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun that's on the earth, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Let's pause there and remind ourselves what vanity is. Vanity is not evil. It is not bad. It does not mean worthless in the sense of holding no value. Remember that word vanity is the word havel in Hebrew. It means breath. It means transient. It means futile in trying to accomplish the deeper meaning of life. In other words, you have questions that are present in your heart because you're a human that you are seeking to be answered, that you are seeking answers for these questions. You are seeking true happiness. You are seeking joy. And when he says vanity, all of the things that he says is vanity are all of these experiences are but breath in accomplishing that purpose. He's making a a value statement there. So let's continue reading in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. 
For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Here's our second stop. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was chavel, it was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I, planted how, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom, and madness and folly. For what can, the, what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw there was more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toiling and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all of his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is vanity. Here's his conclusion. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. 
For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity, a striving after wind. Lord, as we look into your word, would you give illumination, understanding, application to our heart? In your name we pray. Amen. If you're just now joining us in our series through Ecclesiastes, you've realized that Ecclesiastes was written on a Monday morning from somebody who had finally got a grasp with reality. Somebody who says, I've experienced everything and it's not quite what I thought it was. I bought something and it broke. I wore something that I loved and and I wore a hole right through it and now have to throw it away. I bought a new car and it eventually broke down. I married someone and they changed. Come to grasp, they've come to grips with reality and they're trying to figure out what to do with it. Because this world will always let you down. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not saved. And you're starting to come to grips with these same things because you've been disillusioned with everything around you. You've realized that you are walking through the shadowlands, as C.S. Lewis would say. That as you reach around you and you try to grasp reality, you try to grasp truth, it seems to always slip through your fingers and there's yet one next thing that will promise satisfaction. Gas bills are so high and so you buy an electric car only to realize you have to plug it in at your house and now pay the power bill. And all of these things are are coming around you and you're wondering, is there any truth? Let's look at Solomon's experiences and draw a conclusion from what he says. Let's first of all look at his pursuit of wisdom. This word wisdom in chapter 1 and verse 12 through 18 simply means knowledge. It means that he has acquired information. Before I go into this, I need to make the point here that Solomon is not making any moral judgments here. He's not saying that knowledge is wrong He's not saying that pleasure is wrong or that work is wrong, okay? So if you're a child or teenager or college student uh, and you are currently pursuing education, please don't walk away with here with this message on, on Monday morning and walk in and look at your teacher and said, my pastor says that learning is vanity and so I'm quitting school. Please don't do that, okay? Remember, he's making value statements in assessing whether or not your deepest longings can be met, whether or not you can find purpose in these things. So first he talks about this wisdom, this knowledge, this skill. Maybe rather than going to to college, you, you have developed a craft with your hands. You have a skill. This also would apply to that. Or maybe you have developed shrewd business dealings. This is a word that could also talk about that. Just basically talking about skills that you've developed or knowledge that you've developed in your life. And he uses a phrase which is new to us in our journey through Ecclesiastes here in verse 14. If you want to look down with me, he says, all is vanity. And then there's a phrase that says, all is striving after wind. Trying to catch something that can't be caught. 
like trying to thread a needle with a piece of rope. From the very beginning, it's impossible. It's not as though you can try hard enough and eventually get there. You can try as long as you want to try to catch the wind and you'll never catch it. And so he says all of this, even as hard as we try, is simply striving after wind. And so if you want to make a note or highlight every time you see that phrase, you'll see it in verse 14. You'll see it also in verse 17. You'll see it in chapter 2 in verse 11. Chapter 2 in verse 17. And chapter 2 in verse 26. Over and over and over again, he uses this phrase. Trying and trying and trying and trying. And you say, maybe I should just try harder. And you go... I'm trying as hard as I can. I don't know how to try harder. And it's still not working. It's striving after wind. And so in his pursuit of knowledge, he's recognized that in the mindset of this time period, to be called the wisest and smartest person was to be held in the highest of all positions. This is the most the, the, the highest level you can reach is to be called a wise person or a person with knowledge. And so he's straining to accomplish this. And after his devoting his life to this pursuit, he realizes that the end of this is Havel. It's vanity. And so he tries in verse 17 not only to, to accomplish or try to get wisdom and knowledge, but also madness and folly. And here he actually does make a moral statement because he's saying that I've tried the, the, the immoral, foolish things of this world. You could say I've tried partying in an immoral way. And even that didn't satisfy what I wanted. I tried sitting in the classroom, and then I tried partying on Friday night, and they both were were vanity. They both did not answer the questions of my heart. It's interesting that in this first section, uh, Solomon makes two proverbial statements. Look with me at the first one in verse 15. These are really interesting because he's making these proverbial, these proverbs statements of general truth. He says in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. And what he's saying is that something that is broken to this degree cannot be fixed. You know, when you're a child, you think daddy can fix anything or mommy can fix anything. And so the toy breaks and they bring it and say, dad, can you fix this? And sometimes you can. Sometimes it's as easy as snapping the piece back in where it needs to go and they think you're a genius, right? And other times, even with duct tape and super glue, there is no hope because it's broken beyond repair. And what this proverb in verse 15 means is that this world is crooked beyond straightening. It is broken beyond repair. By nature of what it is, it, it, it has a fault in it. And that fault is that this world cannot make you truly happy. But what he's drawing your attention to is that this world leaves you with this longing. It leaves you with this wanting for a reason. Friends, listen very carefully. God loves you too much for you to be satisfied with shadows. God loves you too much to let you rest and be truly happy with something that is vain. He loves you too much 
for this world and its current state to give you satisfaction. He wants you to be unsatisfied with this world. He wants you to be unsatisfied with the things around you because you were created, you were born with a hole in your heart the size of God that only He can fill. And inside of this world, when you find yourself feeling like you're on a hamster wheel and you think, I expected so much more and I didn't get it, God says, exactly. Because it's broken beyond repair. Because this world is cursed by sin and he loves you too much for you to be satisfied with the sin that you're involved in or with the pleasure that that this world brings. Single person, listen to me. I, I know that if you're here and you're single, that you look at, at those who are married and it seems as if they have some blessing you don't. And it seems as if, you know, the old, the old if only statements, if only I, I would be happy, but friends, it's not true. That if marriage made everyone happy, there would be no such thing as divorce. Married person, the answer to your problems is not a different spouse. Single person, the answer to your problems is not a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiancé or a, or a husband or wife. Teenager, the answer to your longings is not fulfilling your heart, filling your heart with sin. Only God can fill that void. It's broken, it's crooked, and it cannot be made straight. It is lacking, and it cannot be full. The second proverb that he gives us is in verse 18, if you want to look there with me. For in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I once talked to a nurse who was struggling with a physical ailment in which it would need medical attention, and there was much anxiety, and I didn't understand it. And I asked this person, why are you, why are you worried about this? And the answer was, because I know too much. I know what all it could be. I know all the bad things that could happen. And so with much knowledge, there's much vexation. How often have you looked at a young child and thought, oh, the blessings of innocence. That a young child could be facing down a charging grizzly bear, but they're safe as long as they're behind their mom or their dad. Everything's going to be fine. Sure, dad can beat that sucker, you know? And you're like, ain't no chance. But for them, they don't know any better. And what Solomon is saying is, as I've increased my knowledge, so I've increased this torture of my soul. As I've increased this wisdom, so I've increased my sorrow. Because the answer to your problems is not more knowledge. Now, is more knowledge wrong? No. I've been pursuing degrees for you know, for 13 years, right? Seminary degrees and different things. And it would be terrible to stand up and say, hey, good job, it's worthless, right? No, that's not the point. The point is that if you are looking for that, for that satisfaction in that knowledge, you will be left short. I mean, how many of us thought we're gonna conquer the world after we graduated high school, only to find out that we were a freshman again? And then thought, if only I could be a college graduate to find out you're at the bottom of the totem pole at work. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. Then only more knowledge 
increases sorrow. Because I'll let you in on a little hint. The more that you know, the more you find out you don't know. And so as you seek knowledge, recognize that it needs to be kept in its place because pursuing wisdom without a relationship with the giver of that wisdom is doomed to failure. Look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, linking with wisdom here. He also pursued a wise lifestyle. Living a wise lifestyle has its benefits because the way of the transgressor is hard. Living a wise lifestyle has its health benefits with maybe less of you to carry around or perhaps, uh, you know, less acid reflux or, or less pain as you live a wise lifestyle. But it's not the answer to all of your problems. Look at verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why have I been so very wise? Why have I eaten healthy for 20 years to find out that I have problems with my cholesterol? If I would have known that, I would have been at McDonald's every day. You know? And if I'm going to have problems, might as well have problems, right? That's what he's saying. This also is vanity. Your two restaurants, eat here and live long, and the second one says eat here and die happy. You're going to have your choice because no healthy food actually tastes good. If they say it does, it's a lie, okay? This is healthy food, and it actually, it actually tastes good. No, it doesn't because the things that make it taste good is what's healthy for you. There's just less in it, right? You guys remember the juice man? You guys remember, he was the first real infomercial guy. You guys remember him? And he would stand up there and he would have people guess his age or whatever and he would juice. So much so they came out with a juicer called the Juice Man Juicer. He's the father of juicing. And at 92 years old, he would stand there and say, you know what the key is to long life? Juice. Juice, juice, juice your vegetables. And then he died. Right? 2017. And he's gone. Juice, it'll make your life long, but he still died. That's just the way life works. Eat healthy, it'll make you live longer, but you still die. Doesn't mean you shouldn't eat healthy. It just means that if you're counting on a wise lifestyle to make you live forever, you're going to be let down, right? Because it's just, it's not going to work. It's funny because people want to live forever, but then they hate being old. It's like, don't get old, it's terrible. By the way, I'm on 50 pills a day to make me live even longer. And you look at this and you go, life is hard, right? The title of the series is Life is Hard, but God is Good. Solomon's making a value statement. And he's making a value statement because he's placed all of his eggs in the basket of this world under the sun, and he came up wanting. Chapter 2, verse 17, look there with me. First four words. So I hated life. Do you hate life this morning, friend? If you hate your life, it's because your expectations are far too high. He expected to be filled with all of his experiences, with his wise lifestyle, and he says... It's vanity and striving after wind. 
You expect the things of this life to keep you happy and to make you whole and to make you satisfied, and it just doesn't happen. So when you think that's going to happen and it doesn't, it makes you hate it. This doesn't mean that you throw knowledge and wisdom out of your life as not worth pursuing. It just means that you need to be pursuing these things for the right goal. And this is where our, our scripture reading comes in. What makes the wisdom of the world foolish? Because it's not, it's not really, the wisdom of the world isn't really foolish in its essence. You have some, some unsaved people, really, who've come to some great leadership tip techniques. You have some scientists who've made some amazing discoveries. But what makes it foolish in value with this in mind of the grand scheme of life is that it still can't answer the question that science will never create life. That yes, you may be able to take the, the, the materials that God has ordained to create life and maybe one day combine those materials outside of the human body and, and, and create life. But we didn't create anything. We just did what God's been doing forever. And that is use his means for life to come into existence. Man has never created everything, we, anything. We've discovered everything. That's what science is, is discovering what's already happening. And you look at that and you have scientists who dedicate their life to try to answer this question and they come up, as, as I read an atheist this week who said the best that I can come up with after a life of study is to live as though life has meaning. And friends, if that's the best you got, after a lifetime of study. How depressing. Of course you would hate life. The first Corinthians chapter 1 says, God chooses what is foolish to shame the wise. That the cross of Christ can give purpose and value in your life to you may seem utterly foolish. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and you hear us saying things like, Jesus provides satisfaction there's something in your heart that wants to reject that as foolish. And even as Christians, sometimes we don't really believe it because we live otherwise, don't we? And yet when you come to God and you embrace the wisdom of God, which 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says Jesus is the wisdom of God, and you embrace him, you find reality. The wisest pursuit of your life needs to be your relationship with God. It begins in the moment of salvation. By turning from your sin, turning from everything in this world as, as, as seeking to provide happiness and, and clinging to Christ. That's what faith is. It's laying hold of who Jesus is and say, Jesus, you're my only hope. You're the only way. You're the only truth. You're the only life. It's you or nothing. It's, it's all, my eggs are all in the basket of Christ. It's God. And I embrace him as my king, turning from my sin. And in that you find forgiveness and satisfaction. Let's look at the pursuit of pleasure. Chapter 2 and verse 1. In your ESV, you may see a heading there, the vanity of self-indulgence. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. What pleasures did Solomon fill his heart with? Verse 3, alcohol. Again, not making a statement about the morality of alcohol. 
He's recognizing that alcohol promises something that it cannot give. It promises relief only to make problems worse. Alcohol doesn't fix anything. It makes everything worse. Success. Verses 4 through 6. Look at everything that Solomon accomplished. You can still go to the West Bank today and see the aqueducts and the pools that Solomon built 3,000 years ago. Look at everything he built. As a side note here, you can see Solomon trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. And that may be something you can meditate on later as you read through what Solomon did. As he's trying to recreate something. God, maybe, maybe I can build something that will be good enough to make me happy. Possessions, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2. He had everything his heart desired, servants, great possessions, more than anyone who had been before him. Friend, how much is enough to make you happy? How much money would you have to make in order for you to be happy? And yet one day, in your previous life, you thought the money you were making now would satisfy you, but what you didn't realize is that nothing is ever enough. Like, it's never enough. Kids, listen. How many of you received... In the past week or so, if you're a kid here, I want you to listen carefully. How many of you received some sort of magazine from Amazon or Walmart with the Christmas magazine? You know what I'm talking about? You know, yep, some of you guys did. We got one, we threw it away before the kids got it. Because (laughs) it's dangerous. Notice a couple things about the magazine. Number one, all the kids are smiling. That's a lie. Number two, there are no prices. You ever notice that? I did Number three, it promises that if you get that toy, you'll be happy, but you won't. When you see that toy at the top of every page, you need, to get your, you need to get your pen with your parents' permission. And on the top of every page, you need to write lies. <laughs> lies. Deception. It's not going to make you happy. How do I know that? Because the same thing happened last year, kids. You got presents last year. And now you've probably either broken them or given them to someone else because they're <sighs> Havel. Sexuality, verse 8. Many wives, many concubines. He sums up his sexual pursuits in the last phrase of verse 8. Any delight of the sons of man. Any sexual pursuit you can imagine Solomon participated in and he walks away and says it's empty. Friends, our world today worships sexuality. Promising that if you could just get a hold of this, you'll be happy, you'll be fulfilled. That if you'll just follow the world's path, that you'll finally have all of your deepest longings satisfied, but it only leads to destruction. Productivity, verses 9 through 11, for all of you who love your to-do lists. He says, when I considered all my hands had done, everything that I accomplished, every pleasure I pursued, all is hebel. It's all a breath. Because all of these pursuits still left his soul wanting. Because anything you pursue in this life other than Christ will leave you wanting. 
You know, unsaved philosophers recognize this. You can look this up later if you want. It's called the hedonistic paradox. Or the paradox of hedonism. They're said both ways. And an unsaved philosopher that I read this week would would tell you that if you pursue pleasure, it will always elude you. That if you pursue happiness, you'll never find it. It's called the hedonistic paradox, and so their conclusion is that you need to pursue the object that makes you happy. But now they still have a problem, is that the objects of this world are fleeting. They're temporary. So there was a great philosopher in the 20th century, Mick Jagger. And as the Rolling Stones would say, I can't get no satisfaction. Even though I try, I try, I try. This is so opposite of what the world is telling you, isn't it? It's like music has it right. How many country songs are all about losing everything? I tried and tried and tried, but then my dog died. You know? The music scene gets it, but it seems like everybody loves the music. It's like, oh, I love that song. And then they go and then they just do the exact same thing. Stuck in this cycle because if you're a Christian, you're choosing to live a life glorifying to God, which means you're going to be standing against the culture. The world says, have it your way. Scripture says, Deny yourself and follow Christ. The world says, be true to yourself. Scripture says, no, 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 no. Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Don't be true to yourself. Be true to God. The world says, look for a life of ease, comfort, and pleasure. The Bible says, take up your cross daily and follow him. That means that we, in essence, are countercultural. What we do, what we want, what we say, everything about us, rather than being driven by a pursuit of self, be driven by a pursuit of God. And then when you set yourself towards Christ, you will be swimming upstream. I used to guide whitewater rafting in my previous ministry down in North Carolina, and we would go down the river, and then sometimes we'd have to, 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 to get to the side of the river, and we'd be going really easy, nobody's paddling, and you spin that raft around, and you say paddle, and everybody's straining just to stay put in the river. And that's what happens when you get saved, is that raft that's going downstream turns around, and all of a sudden you go, whoa, I am standing against the culture. That everything is pushing me. And I didn't realize that I would have to take up my cross daily. And so the world says indulge. And you say deny. And the world says pursue yourself. And, you say, and God says deny yourself. And this draws attention to yourself. It brings criticism to your life. So what should our answer be when we stand in opposition to the culture? Haven't talked about Pilgrim's Progress in a while, so I thought that I'd open it up and read you a little passage this morning. Our family knows I love, church family knows I love Pilgrim's Progress. There's a, copies in the, in the um, resource center, the resource corner there that has some copies there. If you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, it should be, in my opinion, again, this is my opinion, I'm going to step away from the Bible to say this. It should, other than the Bible, in my opinion, Pilgrim's Progress should be your other book that you read most often. And I'll tell you why. Christian and Faithful are traveling on the king's way. 
and the king's way passes through Vanity Fair, the city of Vanity Fair, in which is supposed to picture the world around us indulging in this life. Now these pilgrims, as I said, must needs go through this fair. Well, so they did. But behold, even as they entered into the fair, all the people in the fair were moved. And the town itself, as it was, was in a hubbub around them for several reasons. First, the pilgrims were clothed with such a raiment, meaning their white robe of righteousness, as was diverse from the raiment of any that traded in the fair. The people, therefore, of the fair made a great gazing upon them, Some said they were fools, some said they were bedlams, some said they were outlandish men. Secondly, as they wondered at their apparel, so did they likewise at their speech. For few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of Canaan. But they that kept the fair were men of this world, so that from one end of the fair to the other they seemed barbarians, each to each other. Thirdly, but that which did not little amuse the merchants, that these pilgrims were set very light, or they didn't care about what they were selling. They cared not so much as to look at what they were selling. And if they called upon them to buy something, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry out, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. One chanced mockingly, beholding these men, to say unto them, What will you buy? Listen to this. They, looking gravely upon him, said, We buy the truth. Friend, when the world looks at you and says, What's your problem? You say, I have the truth, and that's what you hate. What will you buy of this world? We buy the truth. That's what we buy. Let all others buy lies and deception. Let all others lay hold of shadows, friends. We have something real. So don't trade it for the shadows of this world. Buy the truth. Don't buy lies. Don't buy into this vain world around you. And it may cost you as it costs faithful. Pursuit of pleasure. Lastly, the pursuit of work as we take our last stop here. We could call this the pursuit of the American dream in verse 18 of chapter 2. That you came with nothing and you built yourself something. You made something of yourself. You finally made it. You hit the $100,000 mark, the $500,000 mark, the million-dollar mark, whatever it is in your mind, that you're like, this is my goal. I want to work for myself. I want to earn this much money. Whatever it is, you've made the American dream. And what does Solomon say? Guess what? When you retire, you're going to hand it over to a punk who doesn't know what he's doing. That's what he says. Chapter 2, verse 21. Sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Do you know why most, and I don't know the exact number, but it's in the high 90s, most people squander away an inheritance within the first year and a half of of the parent's passing is because they didn't work for that money. They didn't have to save. 
So Solomon is saying, I built up this kingdom. And at the end of my life, I look around and I go, I'm about to retire. And I don't want anybody to lead it. Because nobody knows the work that I put in. I don't want somebody else managing this company. I don't want somebody else owning this company. I don't want somebody else getting my hard-earned cash. You know how long I had to save to build that bank account? And now when I'm gone, somebody's going to get access to it and blow through it? Friends, it's, it's vanity. It's, it's, if you're looking to, to, to building bigger and better barns to satisfy you, you're always going to be left wanting. That does not mean that you should not save. That does not mean that you should not leave an inheritance both to further the Lord's work and to provide for your family. That does not mean that. It means that if you're looking to that to make you happy, you won't find it. You're not the owner of your business. You're a steward to be faithful until God gives you the opportunity to not be the steward anymore. My dad, growing up, was a pastor, and he's now since uh, retired from the pastorate. And he's working with an interim pastor uh, group and is actually serving as an interim pastor now in South Carolina. But my dad would always say, every pastor is an interim pastor. Every pastor. Because one day, friends, and I have no plans of leaving, and I would love to die in this pulpit. Don't have any plans to do that. But it'd be great to preach here for 50 or 60 years and be right in the middle of a point and just go right to heaven. It'd be very traumatic for all of you, but at that point I won't care, okay? It'd be awesome. My dad would always say, every pastor is an interim pastor. And he would say that often to remind himself that when it's time to let go, you let go. Your work should be for the glory of God. Manage and steward to the best of your ability for God's glory and let God take care of the rest. Devoting yourself to your work can never accomplish what you want it to accomplish, and that's you being happy. So what's the conclusion of verse 24? Knowledge, pleasure, work, these are not bad pursuits, but they must be pursued in their place. They will never fill you or give you greater purpose Good pursuits are just that, but good pursuits make terrible gods. Your spouse, no matter how wonderful they are, makes a terrible god. Your work makes a terrible god. Your children make terrible gods. And so what is his conclusion? Verses 24 through 26. Let's read it again, and then I'll give you his three-part conclusion. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after when. Number one, recognize that life is a breath. period. Recognizing, I'm going to give you two, two statements. Number one, recognize that life is a breath. Recognizing that life is a breath actually gives you the opportunity to enjoy it. Because it's here and it's gone. But while it's here, I can enjoy it knowing that it's going to be gone. Recognize that this life will never fulfill you as long as you are seeking to find contentment on this earth. 
Only a thriving relationship with God will find satisfaction. You know, sunrises, do you guys see the sunrise this morning? Anybody see that? It's beautiful. If not, you need to wake up earlier and go outside. It's amazing. But they only last for like 10 minutes, right? And God, in his infinite wisdom, chose the colors of orange and purple, which just happened to also be the colors of Clemson University, to paint the sunrise, <laughs> you know? And, and this morning, God, with his beautiful, masterful hand, painted, I took a picture of it, painted an incredible sunrise. And so what do you do? You walk outside and you're, you're, you, you, you glory in it. God, thank you for this sunrise. And I'm not going to go back out at one o'clock and say, where is the sunrise? Because it's gone. But in the moment, God has given you a slice of enjoyment. So you say, God, thank you. That that sunrise reminds me of how beautiful you are. And God, this is what I did this morning, and I kind of cheered up a little bit because I'm super emotional. And, and I was just in the middle of this, and I walked outside and I thought, God, if you can make a beautiful of a sunrise when this world is cursed, can you imagine how beautiful the sunrises will be in the new heavens and the new earth? God, I long for that day. Thank you for these brief moments of joy as they remind me of how wonderful you are, and then they're gone. Friend, accept that life has limitations. Accept that you are human. Don't pretend to be God. You have limitations. Accept that and use that as a token of worship. If you're one of these overachiever people who only thinks they need to sleep four hours a night, before you go to sleep, remind yourself that sleep is a recognition that God is God and you are not. And so let even your sleep be an act of worship as you relinquish control to him. Number one, recognize that life is a breath. And recognizing this gives us an opportunity to enjoy it. Number two, enjoying life is a gift from God. You know, it's all about perspective. The other day, one of my kids found a penny on the ground, and he thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Because it's all about perspective. Money, right? Lies. Won't make you happy. But in that moment, it's all about perspective. You look and you say, I expect so much less from life and I gain so much more because I expect so much from God and he never leaves me wanting. Enjoying life is a gift from God. Our family mission, we've shared it with you often, it's not perfect. Love God, love others, enjoy life in Christ. It's just that simple. That's your job. Love God, love others, enjoy life in Christ. In a few minutes, we are going to go and we're going to have our fifth Sunday fellowship meal, which is, other than the marriage supper of the Lamb, is one of the most glorious things on this earth. Right? Well, that's not even on this earth, so that's going to be in heaven. So we'll be reminded of that. But every single one of us at 3 o'clock this afternoon is going to be sitting and going, I ate too much. Whew. And the next fifth Sunday fellowship, you do the exact same thing. Right? Because it's not going to satisfy, but in the moment you say, God, thank you for this. Thank you that we can enjoy, that I can get around with the people that I love more than anybody else in all the world, that I can get around with my church family, and I can feast, right? It's like Thanksgiving, every fifth Sunday fellowship with my whole family. 
We love it. And then we can walk away because God gives us enjoyment. Thirdly, this is all in this passage, by the way. Thirdly, you please God by enjoying the good things in this life as a gift from him. Did you know that? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. You know, guys, in, in extreme conservative Christianity, there's this idea that, like, God wants you to be miserable. This morning I jokingly walked in the youth group and they're laughing and cutting up, and I just said, no happiness in this room, guys. We're at church. You know? And everybody laughs. It's a joke. Because we have this idea that we're like masochists. You know, it's like, oh, I'm in so much pain. I'm such a good person. You know, if I want to be a, if I really love God, I'm going to go live in a mud hut somewhere. And I'm going to sacrifice. And then God will love me more and God will be more pleased with me. And guys, God does call some people to do that. But if you ever talk to them, they love it. It's like, man, I love doing this. It's awesome. And we're like, you're weird. But even in that, God's given them joy. And when you enjoy this life before God's face, it pleases God. So wake up and walk in, that, in the meal to come and, and enjoy it. And say, God, this is amazing. Thank you that you've given some people the ability to cook like this. This is awesome. Like, God, thank you for the beautiful sunrise. Thank you for laughter. Thank you for entertainment. Thank you for these things which held in their proper place bring joy. And so love life, but love God more. Have a refreshing enjoyment of life in Christ. Don't be afraid to have fun. But friends, even when life is hard, because it is, in the pain, you experience God's comfort. Even in loss, you experience God's presence. Even in grief, you experience God's hope. Because in the experiences of life, it's not about the experience itself, it's about the giver. So Solomon is calling for a perspective change. That when the world sells you lies, you look at them in the face and you say, no thanks, I buy truth. May God give us the grace to live in that way. Lord, we thank you so much for this book of Ecclesiastes that is so earthy. It's real. It's exactly where we live every day. It's, it's written 3,000 years ago under the inspiration of the Spirit, but it could have been written yesterday. It's so relevant for us. And may you give us the grace to love you and be thankful for the only thing that lasts but that we would enjoy the futility of this life 
because it reminds us that our hope is found in you, that our expectations would not be held up in bigger and better things, but yet would rest on your character.